Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we are talking with Dr. William Stixrud, the co-author of What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home, to be released on August 17th. We're so excited to chat with him, but before we get to that, we've got a lot to talk about. So, Steph, I was thinking, you know, we talk about anxiety all the time. We are actually, we did that conversation with Dr. Stixrud. And the reason I think we talk about it so much is because it's just so prevalent in our kids' lives, in our own lives. And the pandemic did not help in any way. I was thinking of all of the references we make to anxiety, test anxiety, performance anxiety, COVID-related anxiety, social anxiety, anxiety over fear of failure. I mean, the list is so long of how much anxiety weighs into our lives. And some of it, we know, we've heard from experts, some of it's really healthy. And all of it is natural, but how do we not let it take over our lives so that it's a detriment? So what we thought we would tell you guys about today are our own our own friction with anxiety, like the things that really kind of cause us to trip in our own lives because we have anxiety that is, in my life, growing and growing and growing. Yay, me. <laughs> so what, Steph, what are your top, top let's, let's go back and forth. What's your top one? Okay, so I think my top one is transition anxiety. So I, <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's coming home, going away, it is like being used to what I'm doing and then having to pack for a trip. And so like that night before or the day of, and then same on the other end. So it's like I get whatever I've gotten used to. So I'm anxious about leaving. If let's say Todd and I are leaving and we're leaving the family, I'm anxious about that. And then coming home, you would think, wow, she must be so relieved coming home because she was anxious on the front end but I'm as anxious coming back to it. I only have 50% of that, but I have it in a big way. I don't have the anxiety about coming home. That's like going home, going home to the routine. Like there, I am so secure in the routine that the going home is not a problem. The leaving is so big. And like, I have, I'm sure you've had this too, Steph, where like before I'm going, especially if I'm going without Dan, I, the week before I'm like, why did I say yes? I shouldn't have said yes. I don't want to go. It's so long. I'm going to be away from you so long. Blah, blah, blah. The list of like what I am perseverating over is so ridiculous. And then I, I drive out of the driveway and I'm fine. Like it's not even, I don't even have to get there. <laughs> I just have to sever like from my life and like get in the car. Is that where perseverate comes <laughs> Oh yeah, perseverating the summer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was probably in my brain because I use that very big word, perseverate. So you know, it was probably sitting there. But it's a good one. yeah, I don't have to wait to get anywhere. I just have to leave my house and get on the road, and I am liberated from that anxiety. So it's, I know that it comes from a deep false sense of security of a routine. Yeah, and mine isn't that. So mine, I don't think it's the routine because then when I crave, kind of like what you're saying, coming home, that fifty percent comment you made, it feels good to you. So I don't, I don't think I'd have to think about it some more. I don't think that's what mine is. I think it's the, oh, what's this going to be like, or settling into a new routine. But 
this is funny and it's related. You and I have talked about this, like the whole having to get the house clean, like that ship has sailed. I don't have that as much anymore, but we, (laughs) before we left on our last trip, a week ago, week and a half ago, we were using our house for a photo shoot for Todd's company. So we have these beautiful plants all over the house. There's nothing, it's not like it's, um, it doesn't look bad. It just looks how it doesn't normally look. And I said to Todd a couple days before we were leaving, and I knew they were really busy at work, and I knew the odds of those plants getting picked up before we left was zero, okay? And I said to Todd, I know you won't be able to understand this, but leaving the house looking like this is completely unnerving to me. And I know you're going to look at me and say, I can't do anything about it. I'm just putting it out there. And he said, that is all accurate. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think I have, I still do the cleanup. And I feel really okay. good about the cleanup. And then I think to myself, why not do the cleanup when you're living here? <laughs> why not so enjoy true. the house, right? Instead of waiting till you leave. But it is like a little bit of that nesting. That's a good one. It's the nesting oh, before okay. you have the baby. Like I'm, I'm, I need something to do because I'm anxious. And so that's yes, really the thing yes. I choose to do. I don't get it. Oh my goodness. Okay, what's next on your list? Well, my next one was like a therapy epiphany, which like, you know, how much, I, I just want to try to figure out how much money it costs to get to that epiphany. But the passage of time creates a ton of anxiety for me. And that is a, well, I would say I've always had it, just didn't have any awareness of it. But I cried every time my kids finished something. So finished kindergarten, oh, started in in nursery when I thought, I know, they had the best teacher in the whole world. And it would be the last day. And there would be just a few moms standing in the corner weeping because our kids were done with that as if. They had graduated high school and were going off to college. That's how I felt. But as it turns out, I have it on a very regular basis. Like I, the day as it proceeds, I get more anxious that I didn't get enough done. You know, at, we're a week away from a family vacation and I've been steadily preparing for it. But I feel every day it's getting closer and I haven't done this, this and this. Not reasonable. We're still going to be in the world where there are stores. If for some chance I left something home, we're going to be all, we're all going to be okay. Like I have not yet gotten the the sunscreen and I'm like, put it on the list, put it on the list. There will be sunscreen there. But it is this weird sense, like marked by by days and by weeks and by birthdays and all of these things that really hit me hard of like, wow, how are we in August? And some people say that with like a certain amount of levity, like, can you believe how crazy this is that we're in August? But I really feel like, wow, if it's already August, and I just turned 60. I'm almost 80. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. Time doesn't make any sense. And so it's, it, it does create an odd physical anxiety. So mine is sort of related. I have one and it, I, it touches on two, two points you just made. So one is every summer on July 5th, I'm extremely sad because, and I just told my family this and they're like, she needs help. I mean, I could, uh, there was so much silence around me when I shared it that I was like, huh. So somebody said something they couldn't believe it was August. And they're like, wow, it's the end of summer. And I'm like, you know, I've been mourning that since like July 5th, that every year when July 4th, I'm like, oh my God, how could it be July 4th? School just ended. And oh my God. And it's, the, and it's summer. And, you know, and so I just go into like, you know, just total like shutting down. So I have that. But the other piece of mine is I called it kid stress. So the stress my kids are feeling, I'm in direct 
proportion to. So I, it's like the comment, like you're only as happy as your least happy child. So if they are holding that stress, then I see like, I am holding that stress. Someone actually, my college roommate just said to me like, Oh, when you drop Lane off, are you going to cry? And I said, only if she does. <laughs> so it's like the, the, the parody of that. Like I said, I'm like ET where ET takes on like the, the little boy's feelings and stuff, but I just put it into the bucket of kids stress. Like my stress is, or my anxiety is related to their anxiety or stress. Yeah. I think that's, that is a hard one to let go of, like not yeah. to feel sadness when our kids are feeling sadness and not to feel anxious when they are. That's a really hard one for me. I have Moving on to my next one, which mm. I hope you guys have like the next 10 hours for us because we're only on to three right now. I just cleared my calendar for the <laughs> afternoon, so. So my next one is, and, and all of my kids have something that I could notice and pull out, but because we're about to go on vacation, I'm keenly aware of this one. One kid needs the schedule to be set in advance and then needs the schedule to go exactly as planned. Like it is such... It's so challenging for this kid to find out that someone else is coming on the trip with us or to find out that the times aren't going to work in sync or, you know, all of it. It's like somehow the schedule is what settles that kid's anxiety and it creates an enormous amount of anxiety for everyone around that kid. <laughs> because, <laughs> because life throws things at you that don't, you know, right. you, get, you get lost on the way to the hike. You... The meal didn't work out the way you planned. Like, it's just inevitable. So that one, it's twofold because it comes from a need to control, to control the, the environment so that you lessen the anxiety. But it also exponentially increases anxiety for the people around that kid. So mine I called crowd stress. Some of that is COVID and coming back to, like, reality some of it is just the crowd or not liking people in my space. Like I've already started to think about Lane has her move-in time and I'm like, oh good, they gave her move-in time. That means the roommate has a different move-in time. Not true. So they have the same move-in time. So I'm like, oh my God, like we're all going to be in the room and do I have to talk to them? Like, or like, what if, like, just uh, and, like, like I want to make those noises. Like the, like I just, it's too like, you know what too, I want to say in response, if you can see <laughs> Stephanie's face, your response is, oh, grow up. Your whole oh, body, your whole body is like a teenage kid going, really? Uh, I have to do this. I don't want to uh, do this. I don't want to do it. And it's like, oh my God, am I going to be forced into a conversation? And blah, blah, blah. Like, just like, you're right. Oh, grow up. But it is like just, uh, oh, that that discomfort of just wanting to like, do it my way and with my kid and, you know, and same in like a crowd, like by definition, like I went to Blossom the other night, okay? Blossom is our, for any non-Clevelanders listening, it is our outdoor venue, you know, everybody, not every city, but many cities have them. To hear the orchestra and Beatles show is lovely, but I was like, mm. I mean, there, how many people are at Blossom? 15,000? I mean, by far the biggest crowd I have been in yet since COVID, right? Because we didn't have any of that last summer. So like, that was like a huge, now thankfully in that type of thing, you only have to talk to the people you're with, but it still is like a, like, you know, like how they're uh, corralling people to the cars. I was like, oh my God, this may have been way more than I bargained for. I actually let go of the stress after I was vaccinated, but I'm back in now with the Delta. And we were just away this weekend and went to, 
a quasi outdoor thing. It's kind of like sitting in the pavilion when you're at the outdoor concert. And I wore a mask. I just felt like, well, I, I wore a mask, but then every time I started sweating, I had to take it off and like give myself a chance. Cause I get really hot when I have a mask on. I don't know if other people, yeah. if that's just me, I do have this weird feeling like I, I want to be more protective than I did initially, but I don't know how much or what that looks like. Anyway, we are all disasters in this space of anxiety and, and the current state of affairs is not helping us or our teenagers. But the good news is we're going to hear from William Sticksrude and he's going to give us really some very helpful strategies about how to deal with all this anxiety right now. Up next is our conversation with him. We can't wait for you to join us. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Dr. Stixrude is a clinical neuropsychologist and founder of the Stixrude Group. He is a member of the teaching faculty at Children's National Medical Center and assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Additionally, Dr. Stixrude is the author with Ned Johnson of the nationally best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And today we're here to talk about their new book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home, coming out on August 17th. So we are here today to um, really home in on what we can do to help our kids right now. So what in particular are you seeing that teenagers are most worried about, you know, after this whole year and a half of craziness? Even before COVID, I mean, one of the most striking things that I've learned in the last three years was that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation published a a survey. um, And what what they concluded was that the four main causes of stress and anxiety in adolescents are poverty, discrimination, trauma, and excessive pressure to excel. I think that excessive pressure to succeed academically, where I live, I mean, so many kids growing up with this delusional idea that the most important outcome of their whole childhood and adolescence is where they go to college. And so I think that that's a big part. I also think that after puberty, peers become like crack cocaine. And certainly the way you appear to, to your peers, the way the kids think about you becomes hugely important. So kids have a lot of angst about their social relationships. And certainly during the pandemic and, and at this point, many kids worry about the health of their family and their friends. And, and many families have been devastated financially, all kinds of financial pressure, concerns about can I afford college, college debt. There's a lot. So for the parents that are listening to our podcast, one of the things we're often struggling with is how do we help our teenagers deal with stress? 
And one of the stress, big de-stressors that you talk about is this sense of control. So how do we as parents give them that ease and that, that sense of control that they all long for? The major theme of our first book, The Self-Driven Child, is that one of the most important things that we can do for teenagers is help them develop a healthy sense of control of their own life. And it's based in part on research um, that some of the stress scientists, one stress scientist in particular um, in, in Montreal, says there's four aspects of life that make it stressful. It's novelty, unpredictability, perceived threat, and a low sense of control. And it's that low sense of control that's the most stressful thing you can experience. And so when Ned and I were, were writing our first book, we're, we're thinking that the sense of control must be a huge deal if it's really, the, if we have all these stress-related problems in teenagers and the low sense of control is the most stressful thing you can experience. And we also l- looked at research, just on basic, basic research on a sense of control done by Steve Mayer at the University of Colorado. He had basic paradigm, Rat A and Rat B. Rat A, is, they're both in these plexiglass cages. Their tails are outside the cage. There's a little wheel in the cage. Rat A gets shocked and discovers that, that if he turns the wheel, the shock stops. Rat B gets shocked, turns the wheel, nothing happens. And the shock only stops when Rat A turns the wheel. So Rat A rescues Rat B, basically. But Rat A has this experience when he's turning the wheel that the prefrontal cortex is regulating the stress system and dampening down the stress response. And Brad A goes into coping mode and he has that experience. Something stressful happens, I react and I can handle it and the stress goes away. Rat A becomes almost impossible to stress after a couple of weeks of this. Rat B, who doesn't develop that sense of control, becomes a nervous wreck. So Meyer says it's that sense of control, it actually inoculates you from the harmful effects of stress. And everywhere that Ned and I looked when we were writing The Self-Driven Child, that all the arrows in terms of mental health problems pointed in the direction of a sense of control. So we do it in in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, I'll mention one other thing, which is that we think about this sense of control in two dimensions. One is that subjective sense of autonomy or agency. And the other is the brain state that supports it, where the prefrontal cortex, which can think logically and put things in perspective and solve problems, regulates the rest of your brain. So when you have a healthy sense of control, you aren't feeling overwhelmed or you aren't feeling helpless or hopeless. You feel like you're goal-directed, you're in the present. Your prefrontal cortex is regulating the rest of your brain. As soon as you get stressed or too tired, that, that, that goes out the window. But the, so the sense of control is huge. And a couple of the ways uh, that we develop it, number one, we place a strong focus on that, that support of autonomy, that sense of agency. This is my life, and I'm going to get out of it what I put into it. And secondly, we do what we can to help teenagers maintain that healthy brain state where the prefrontal cortex regulates the amygdala. And I know we'll, the other questions later, we'll come back and talk more about this. Those are really the two main ways of developing a sense of control, focusing on agency, whose life is it? And it's, it's their life, supporting that sense of this is my life. And secondly, help them stay in the brain state that, that where they aren't feeling chronically tired or chronically overwhelmed, chronically stressed. So the, the mice in that experiment, the mice have external control over something. It's something that's happening to them and that one of them gets the sense of being able to control that. In life, things get thrown at us. And so how do we 
create in our kids that ability to whatever gets thrown at us have, whether it's a perceived sense of control or a real sense of control. Actually, it's pretty interesting because Steve Mayer, the, the scientist, says it's really the illusion of control. I mean, there, there's many, and the idea of a sense of control doesn't mean I can control everything or I get to control or I get to be the boss of my family or you know, I, 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 I get, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be able to control everything. It doesn't mean that. It just it, it means that I have this sense of agency. I have, I'm not helpless. I'm not hopeless. I'm not chronically overwhelmed. I'm not chronically exhausted. That sense of control is hugely correlated with every good thing we could want for our kids. So part of this is that the subtitle of our new book is, is, is Talking with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. It's that stress tolerance that, that we think is so crucial because what clearly, given the level of anxiety and mental health problems in young people, they just aren't tolerating stress very well. And the scientists say there's there's three three kinds of stress. There's positive stress that you you know you got the jitters. I'm taking a test where your brain is actually maximizing your perform, kind of gearing up to maximize performance. And there's tolerable stress, which is something where something really stressful happens, but it doesn't go on forever, and you have some support to handle it. And that's what that we can grow from that. And then there's toxic stress, which is just overwhelming, and then that's just that's just bad. We want to we want to avoid that where possible, but it's that t- dealing with that 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 that, that tolerable stress that that, and that we want kids to be able to have some experience with that, because the way you develop resilience and that confidence that I can handle life challenges is by doing it. So when you said it's this illusion of control, and the kid having agency, how do you get a teen? to see that? Is that as simple as saying, this is your life and you get to make these choices? What what does that sound like? What's that conversation? Three of the questions that I kind of ask when I was raising my own children, did, did I kind of remind myself, I'd, I'd ask is, whose life is it? Whose responsibility is it? And whose problem is it? And I wanted to remember that that's, I, I used to do psychotherapy early in my career. And I often would meet with a 35 or a 40 year old I'd, I'd say, how can I help in the first session? And they'd say, well, I, I, I feel like I spent the first 35 or 40 years of my life trying to live up to other people's ex- expectations. Now I'm trying to figure out what's important to me. And I'm thinking, we can get an earlier start on that. And so part of this, whose life is it, is I want to remember, it's really the kid's life. And one of the wisest things anybody ever said to me about parenting a teenager. I don't remember who it was, but somebody said to me many years ago, when my kids were little, they said, the coolest thing about raising adolescents is that every day when they come home from school, you get to see who they're deciding to be. And so that, that whose life is it and whose responsibility is it means that we don't want to take responsibility for stuff that's the kids. You know, that, that if we do, we weaken them. We don't want to work harder to, to help them be successful than they do because they'll weaken them. If we put any, if we, the parents put 80 units of energy into trying to get a kid to do well in school, the kid will put 20. And if the parent gets more anxious and puts 85, and the kid will put 15 in, and it doesn't change until the energy changes. And the whose, pro, and whose problem is it's simply that we want kids to solve their own problems as much as possible with our support, but they want them to have that experience of the prefrontal cortex activating, trying to solve the problem, and then recovering, because that's what's building resilience. I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm still confused as a parent what that looks like for me because there's this continuum of stress. You gave three types of stress, 
we're supposed to help them with the one that they can manage, but they still already are, they are still only the age they bring and the experience they've lived. And we're still parents, right? Like we're still in this equation. How do we know when help, letting them solve the problem is saying, hey, I think you've got this. And how do you know when solving the problem is, I need to help them here. I mean, they need, they need some adult parent perspective on this. I want kids to have all the help that they need. And certainly there are many kids that I see who are really, who are not capable. I mean, they're, they're profoundly depressed or they're using drugs and they aren't capable really of making good decisions for themselves. And we have to intervene in a way whether they want us to or not. Short of that, I think the message we want to give our kids is I, I, I think the best message you can give a teenager, besides I, besides I love you more than anything, is that I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have a ton of experience doing that before I send you off to college. I, I gave a lecture, Sue, in, in, in Houston uh, before the pandemic. And I happened to, uh, about our first book, and I happened to mention this, this very elite school in Washington, D.C. I don't remember the context, but I did. Afterwards, this woman came up to me and said, I'm a therapist here at the Menninger Foundation in, in, in Houston, this very prestigious mental health clinic. And she said, we know this independent school in D.C. really well because these kids get into the most elite colleges, but they just but they can't handle them emotionally. So they, they take a medical leave and they come here for, for therapy. And, and, and she said to the one, they simply don't have enough experience handling things on their own. And so I, I, my goal is for I, I, what I, I tell parents is I, I, I want this kid to be able to run his own life before he goes to college. When he goes to college, you're putting him into the most dysregulated living environment outside of a war zone in terms of a, a college dormitory. And so many kids can't handle it. And the way you handle it is you practice running your own life. I want to offer I mean, that, that what we talk about in both books is the idea of think of as kids, especially with teenagers, thinking about ourselves as our consultants to our kids rather than their manager or their boss. So, so we want to offer all the help we can, that, that we offer help. We offer advice. But many parents of teenagers um, work harder than the kid does to try to do well, make most of the decisions for say that's too important decision, he can't make that himself, which is really, the, I, I want to rethink that one. Bill, will you say again what you say? I think it bears repeating. You use beautiful words like about a 40 seconds ago, what you would say to the kid. The best message you can give a teenager besides, I'm crazy about you, it is, I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have a ton of experience to do that before I send you off to college or, 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 or before you leave home. And, Beautiful. And I just want, I just want, have this, and I got to this because, in part, because I saw how capable teenagers can, are to make decisions if we, if we help, if they will listen to, they'll have a conversation with us or with other more experienced people. Kids can make really good informed decisions. Teenagers don't have the experience that we have. They often, they can be more impulsive, but they're very capable of making good decisions for themselves if they're, they're willing to talk with people who are more experienced. No, it's beautiful. Okay, so let's so we, we're talking about their emotions, but now let's talk about our emotions as, as as the parents, which are often very hard to remove. So, how do we manage our own anxiety while trying to manage theirs? Well, you know, in in both of our books, we talk about this idea of parents moving in the direction of being a non-anxious presence for their kids. And <laughs> we didn't make this term, but I wish we did. I just love I love the term, but. This guy named Edwin Friedman, 
made this term up. He studied, he was, he was a rabbi and a family therapist and a systems consultant, and he concluded that systems, whether, whether or organizations, whether it's a family or a school or a synagogue or, or, or a corporation, they work best if the people in charge are not highly anxious and emotionally reactive, if they can be a non-anxious presence that communicates courage and confidence rather than fear. And you, I mean, you think about it, it it's, it's much easier to soothe an infant if you can stay calm. If you've got a two-year-old who's freaking out in a store, it's a lot easier to deal with it if you don't freak out yourself. If you've got a 15-year-old coming home from school who just got dumped by his girlfriend or just got cut from the basketball team, it's a lot easier to be helpful if we don't get real upset ourselves. And your kid comes up, just, uh, just flunk, gets an F in something. If we don't get upset, we can just be helpful. And so this is, this, we, this is the idea, we plant this idea on our own head that it's good for my kid to be a non-anxious presence. Partly because <laughs> my, 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 uh, my co-author, Ned, Ned Johnson, who's a test prep guy, who's been on your show before, he sees these kids are 16 and 17 at a really stressful time in their life. And they so often say to Ned, you know, I just, I did, I got a C minus on, on, on my test. Don't tell my parents, they'll freak out. And ideally, as parents, if kids have a tough time, we don't get more upset than they do. You know, that we, we can stay calm to, to, to help them. And so what we talk about in terms of how do, how do, we, how do we practice being an unanxious presence? And part of it is we practice taking a long view. And I, I just wish that I could share my 40 years of experience with, with parents. I wish that somehow that I could download it because I've seen so, thousands and thousands of kids who are a hot mess when they're 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 who turned out incredibly. And most kids turn out well. And all of our anxiety about our kids, it's about the future because of it's the, the, the fears they're gonna get stuck in this neg some negative place and not get better. But if we don't get stuck, they usually get better. They usually, they usually gotta figure stuff out. There's a story in the new book of a, a kid I saw, uh, I, I tested him when he, I'm, I'm a neuropsychologist, I test kids for a living. And I tested this kid when he was six, and then he moved out of state, moved back when he was 17, and very ADHD, had a little learning disability, got through high school because he was sent to this very structured boarding school where people were on him all the time. And then he flunked out, he flunked out of college several times, couldn't hold a job. I saw him when he was 23 years old and he was going to bed at four in the morning, getting up at noon, smoking pot and playing video games all day. And I wasn't optimistic. I mean, he'd, he'd had this, this, this cycle of failure for several years. And I, I suggested to this family that, that they not let him freeload in the house and that, that they required that he volunteer, take classes or get a job. And I said to him, if you want, if you want to create a life, you're going to have to get your sleep cycle aligned with the light and dark cycles of the universe. You're going to have to treat video games and pot as an addiction. And he, and he, he, he was ready to change and he, he did. And this kid now is a very successful engineer. He's happily married. He's still working on forgiving himself for having put his parents through so, so much angst. But typically, if we don't get stuck, kids don't get stuck. So it's taking the long view. To do what you're suggesting is not, it's not like your one beautiful <laughs> sentence and we go, I've got it. It's really hard work for parents to, first of all, it, it requires for most of us changing how our parents spoke to us. So that's a big step. And also, like, don't be anxious. Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Many parents that, that I see, they don't realize the, how anxious they are. They don't realize that the way they're anxious, that their anxiety is affecting their kids. So they don't really think about working on it. So they don't think of that it would, it would be good for me to meditate, for example. In our new book, we talk about how do we communicate? We just, we just wrote an article called Be Very Afraid, because it seems like so many teenagers, that's the message they're getting now, is you need to be very afraid. And well, ideally, we give messages that this, this world is really, COVID, even during COVID, it's relatively, it's probably it's a pretty safe place, that the future is pretty safe, and, and you're welcome in this world. And it's, we want, so we give them messages of courage and confidence, but it's, we have to work on ourselves. And, but both Ned and I are huge proponents of meditation because the more we meditate, the more we radiate that calm, that, that non-anxious presence. All right. Well, so we're, we are going to um, do our best, but I just want to put out there for people who are listening and feeling like, oh, God, all the work is on me. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. And also, I'll just add, it's pretty forgiving as a profession. So, you know, we're not going to get it right all the time. Certainly, kids don't need perfect parents. There are people who are just born to be more inclined to be anxious or less anxious. Yeah, I don't want people to torture themselves. But I do think that many people find, I mean, we have a story in the second book about this, this, this guy that, that Ned knows who used to just be constantly on his teenager. And he learned to meditate, and, and, and within a couple of months, he noticed that, that the stuff that his kid used to do, does, that used to just send, you know, send him uh, to, to, to the moon, just didn't upset him anymore. And I just think, think that if we want to be helpful, if we want, if we want to be a, that calm, non-anxious presence, then we kind of work at it. And, and it's not just for the kid. I mean, it, it, being a non-anxious presence is, is helpful for your spouse and is, is for, for your own life. I think that's great framing because I think it's like anything with the kids or family. Like when you can think, I'm doing this for everyone's benefit, that's a powerful message. Okay, so let's do a little shift and talk about self-confidence, which is something that seems to be an antidote to so much in our lives and our kids' lives. So you talk about it all the time. How, how do we as parents build that in our kids? And is it linked to what you've already just said? Certainly, I think part of it is expressing confidence in them. I mean, it, it, and there's a new program for treating anxiety in kids called the SPACE program. Have you heard of it? It's, it's an acronym, I think supporting, supported parenting of anxious childhood emotions. And it came out, it's out of Yale, and it just works with parents. And it's as effective as actual therapy for kids. But what, what it is, it, it helps parents identify the ways in, in which they react to kids' anxiety, where they accommodate kids' anxiety, like by, by reassuring them constantly. And, and th that what's, what's been shown to be true is when parents say, I used to think that you couldn't handle your anxiety or you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't be in a room by yourself or, you, or you, know, you, you needed me to do this for you or you couldn't turn in an assignment that had a mistake. I don't believe that anymore. In fact, I'm 100% confident you can handle this. And I, th I think that part of this idea of supporting autonomy is the message that, that I, I have confidence in your ability to handle your own life, make decisions for yourself, learn from your mistakes. So that, that, that's part of it. Many of the kids I see who lack confidence also, we, we, we try to talk them out of it. And we, we try to, oh, oh no, that's not true. You're, there, there's, there's a story in our second book, uh, in, 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 the, in the, the What Do You Say, our new book, about, we gave a lecture in Palo Alto a couple of years ago, and we were talking about this idea of um, 
of, of not solving problems for kids. And, and, and um, this mother sent us an email the next morning and said, you know, after I got home from your lecture last night and my seventh grade son came up to me and he was crying. He said, I'm the weakest kid in seventh grade. And ordinarily, I, I would have tried to, I said, no, that's, I couldn't be true. That's not true. Or, or I would have leaped immediately into saying, well, let's call the, the gym teacher and see if we, 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 we try to figure out, solve a problem. All she said was, was that sucks. It just, it just let, let me know if there's a way that I can help. And she went to bed. The next morning, this kid comes with a written plan of how he's, how he's going to get stronger. And then they kind of brainstorm about how to implement it. And she said, I just, I just, I, 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 it was so cool because then I could say, I, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by what you're able to do on your own. And I, you know, I used to think you couldn't do this. You couldn't handle this kind of thing. So part of it, expressing confidence, not trying to talk them out of it. You know, I, I see kids, I kids see constantly, because the more that you try to talk kids out of stuff, the, the, the more they hang on to it. And in, in part, because we're, we're at, kids are ambivalent about, about changing. And if a kid who sees himself negatively, it's not lost on him that it would be, the confidence would be helpful, but it's also that, that he feels like he doesn't deserve it. Or that if we, so if we try to argue, no, 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 you're really good at this, or that he'll, they'll hold on tighter. So the second piece is simply not trying to talk him out of it. And just saying, I can't, take, I, I can't take this away from you. I can't take this perception away from you. But I want you to know that I see it really differently. And if you'd like to hear my point of view, I'd be happy to share it with you. Getting that kind of buy-in is, is another way. Let's talk about, it's a great segue to trust. How do we show trust in our teens, even if we don't necessarily feel that? Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a really tough space for parents. Well, I think that so, so many parents of, of kids who, who in some ways violate their trust, they say, well, I, I can't trust you until you show me that you're trustworthy. And I think that usually when the energy is set like that, I just don't really see it changing very much. The first thing is that, is, is that and we talk about this more in, in, in Self-Driven Child, is that kids are really capable. I mean, if you think about what teenagers are able to accomplish in, in, in art, in music, in, in athletics, you see these social justice warriors who are 17-year-olds or 16-year-olds who are powerhouses. And you think they're probably capable of more than just doing their homework and doing sports. And so the part of this is recognizing that they're extremely capable. And also uh, is knowing that by, by the time a kid is 14 or so, most of the cognitive functions that are involved in decision making are as good as adults can do. And also all the research on, on decision making suggests that emotions are huge that you can't make good good decisions for yourself if you don't pay attention to your own emotions. And that's part of the, 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 the wisdom of encouraging kids to decide for themselves because we want them to be atten paying attention to their own emotions. So part of that, 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 that trusting kids is that we, have, we don't have confidence that we can. It doesn't mean that they'll never make a mistake, because it, but if you, if you set it up that I expect you to make mistakes and I, want you, and I, and I don't want you to make a tragic mistake, but I expect you to make the kind of screw up in, in various ways the way I, I still screw up stuff and then I, I, I'm still learning from it. And I want you to do that. I think it's easier to trust. So one of the things that I've always thought about is like if my if I have my eye on the end game, which is sending them off to be adults, maybe I'll make better decisions along the way. 
So you've talked about that already, but I, I know that you have this one point about autonomy and almost it's a prerequisite to arriving at adulthood. And maybe your example that you gave before of the 24-year-old in the parent's basement also ties into that. How do we, you know, it, it, it's linked to all the other parts of the conversation, but how do we give our kids autonomy in a way that leads them toward adulthood, but is also appropriate? From the time they're little, I mean, with, with, in terms of autonomy, do you, do you want to do it this way or this way? You know, just, uh, you, you're the one, you, you can tell a three-year-old, I mean, you, you, you're the only one who knows when you're full and when you're not full. So I want you to eat, eat until you're full and then stop, you know, that, that kind of idea, as opposed to, to eat more, eat more. So there, there's ways, do, do, do you want to, letting kids choose their own option, there, there's from the time that they're little that we can support autonomy. And the, as I said, the metaphor that, that we use uh, in, in both our books is thinking about ourselves as consultants. And the implications are, are that we offer help and we offer our advice, but we don't try to force it down kids' throat. <laughs> dad has this great cartoon where this, this, this dad has his, his two sons by the nape of the neck. And he says, listen up, boys, and listen up good, because I'm only going to tell you this a million times. <laughs> you know, and, That's funny. You know, and and the, idea, the, the idea is, is simply that so many parents tell me, I've told them a million times. I, I keep trying to tell them. Well, it's not effective. Save your breath. Get buy-in. So that we say, say, you know, I've got an idea about that. Do you want to hear it? Or I wonder what would happen if you did it this way. But, but we want to, in our second book particularly, we talk about this, this new book. We talk about how to skillfully communicate. So we are just blathering and kids are, are, aren't paying attention. So the first thing is that we, we don't try to force. We don't try to force help on kids that they don't want. Unless, as I said earlier, Sue, unless they're, they're abusing drugs, they're, 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 really, they're very depressed and they can't think straight. But short of that, we don't try to force help because we want to treat them respectfully. Our motto is that kids have a brain in their head and they want their life to work out. So the second thing, so we, we offer help and we offer advice, but we don't force. Second thing is we encourage decision making. And the third is, is that we, where possible with our support, we, we encourage them in making their own decisions. I mean, and I think that th those are the three primary ways that I know about for teenagers to support that autonomy. And it just, God, it just works. <laughs> there's, there's, a, uh, there's a woman who I, I've tested all four of her kids and Ned did test prep with all four of her kids. And, the, I, and, and, and this mother loves both. She actually, she, actually she, I think she introduced Ned and I many years ago. And when I tested her youngest, who was 15 at the time, he was just a hot mess. I mean, he, he, he was struggling hugely academically, was having trouble with friends, had really bad anxiety and OCD, and everything was going wrong. And the mom, who's, who's a lovely person and incredibly organized, was on top of the kid constantly. The kid had tutors. He was f f resisting other people's attempts to help him. The mom reads our book, The Self-Driven Child, and says, I trust these guys. It just, it's counterintuitive to me, but I trust them. And just and, and decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk this walk and stop checking his homework, just start, start, stop saying, shouldn't you be doing this, set, set, help it work out some limits with him on video games and other stuff. And I got an email from her early in his senior year in high school saying, he just got invited to the National Honor Society. And two of his parents said that he's an incredible human being. And she just and, and, and she just had to sit on, I mean, she really had to work on sitting on her hands and zipping her lip because it was really hard for her because she's so competent. 
but she's, she's so, she, she, could, she could organize his kid's life so beautifully, but he fought it. And so I'm just saying that it's not intuitive to everybody, but supporting autonomy, it, it's just, it's so, I mean, look, the research on this is just so compelling. It's the key to motivation. Okay. <laughs> I think we can go back to that. All right. So Bill, we're going to wrap up with our, our question. We, the question we ask all of our guests, which is what is the biggest myth about raising teenagers? I, I, th- I think the biggest one is that they aren't capable, that they're not fully mature. So we need to be in charge of their lives. I mean, I, I think that, that that's for me, that, that that's that's the, the biggest, in, our, in, in contemporary life, that's the biggest mistake. We completely infantilize teenagers. We, we, we set the bar way too low. Rivaling that is this idea that the most important outcome of their adolescent years is where they go to college. When in fact, the research suggests that it makes very little difference when you go to college. And, and I just, I, I just, if we just told them the truth, life would be, be if we just told them the truth life would be so less stress, so much less stressful. Dr. William Stixrude, thank you so much for being here with us. We can't wait to talk to you again about your next book. That, that sounds great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about your team with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.